0: Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage.
1: This is episode 150 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In today's episode, we're interviewing Liz Byron, who in 2004 undertook an epic journey on the Bicentennial National Trail, which runs between Cooktown and Queensland, to Healesville in Victoria, a distance of around 5,300 kilometres. This is Australia's longest shared trail and is accessible to hikers, long-distance horse trackers and cyclists. Liz's journey took in the northern half of this trail, and over seven months she covered approximately 2,500 kilometres. Where her journey is unique is that she did it with the aid of donkeys, Grace and Charlie, to carry her equipment. This is truly an inspiring story and one that is well worth listening to. This is one of our longer podcast episodes, but it is unique. So if you have an interest in the Bicentennial National Trail uh, or hiking with pack animals, this is certainly an interesting one. Uh, and i must admit i learned more about donkeys than i ever thought possible and i found it really interesting so we hope you enjoy today's episode today we are catching up with liz byron 15 years after her epic journey to talk about her amazing trip as well as her recently released book the only way home liz thank you for taking the time to talk with australian hiker
2: you're welcome, and I'm delighted to be here.
1: Okay, now before we start on the trip itself, tell us a bit about uh, your hiking background. You know, what have you? What sort of hikes have you done in the past, uh, and what's your hiking involvement?
2: Okay, well, uh, hiking to me describe is the the one word that covers my two great loves, and that's bushwalking in Australia and long-distance trekking anywhere you like. But bushwalking was where I started, uh, I, and I started in the late 1960s bushwalking with my, my husband, and we had two a two-year-old and a four-year-old in tow at that time when we began. Um, we, we soon progressed to overnight bushwalking, Uh, Carrying ridiculously heavy packs, um, and in those days there were no external frame packs, let alone internal frame. All the weight was on the shoulders. But that was we were carrying weights for you know children as well as adults. Uh, But so it was very much um, bushwalking for me was connected with family. Um, Our our four children, in fact, grew up bushwalking through the nineteen seventies, when it was quite rare to see a family's bush, bushwalking in the with children. Um, because I suppose because it was so rugged, um, it, it was much less crowded than it is today, and certainly no boardwalks, things like that. But we we often had the kids' friends with us, so we, when we occasionally came across other bushwalkers, our, our group attracted. A lot of interest and comments about how well the kids managed on these on rough, steep tracks.
1: All right, now, and and I believe um, um, you—you were when we were setting up this uh, uh, this interview. I believe you've done some uh, a reasonably big track in the Himalayan region.
2: Yes, so uh, as well as you know, bushwalking in Australia. So from the from my early twenty, my late twenties until um, yeah, my my fifties. It was primar- primarily Australian bushwalking, but when I was fifty, we did a. My husband and I did a, a six-week expedition to Mera Peak in the Himalaya. Mera Peak's at six and uh, a half thousand meters, with a fine view of Everest. You feel very much as if you're right up there. Um, it's in fact the highest peak in the world that one can walked to without technical climbing gear. All we needed was crampons and ice axes. Uh, but when I had finished that trek, I never... Well, the trek was over, but I didn't want to stop. I could have walked forever. I felt as if I just wanted to spend the rest of my life walking like this. And by this time, my children were all adults with their own own lives, So I'm thinking about what I wanted for my life from that point on.
1: Okay, so now early, getting on to the uh, the, the trip we're talking about today, so it sounds like roughly in around about the early 2000s, you decided you wanted to do a long trek. Um, How did you decide you were going to do an adventure of this size and why did you choose this particular trip?
2: Well, the first Bit about an adventure of this size. Size absolutely comes back to that Merapit trip, because yes, I wanted to just keep walking forever, but mm, it was time to go back to Australia, and time to put a full pack back on my head, my back again, um, because there were no Sherpas in Australia for carrying your pack. The adventure of this size really derived. Directly from the Merapik expedition, the feeling of wanting to walk forever stayed with me. Because by the time I was, by that time, my kids were all grown up, so it was about now about my life and what I wanted to do, sort of with my life. But to do that sort of walking in Australia, I had to come back to carrying my own pack, you know. A heavy pack, if you're going to do long-distance stuff in Australia, it's nearly impossible. I, well, no, it's not impossible because people do it. But as I was getting older, it would have been pretty tough to, to walk, you know, really long distances with, between um, supply outlets. So I put it on hold, really, until I discovered donkeys in the sense of the idea of donkeys being able to carry my load. That just opened up a whole world for me. But, my God, I can walk, I can do a long-distance trek in Australia with two donkeys and just carry a day pack. <laughs> so that's, that was the beginning of the adventure of this size, yeah.
1: Why did you choose the Bicentennial National Trail?
2: Well, for fairly naive reasons, actually, Um because I'm not a good navigator, after, you know, 30 years, more, more than 30, you know, 30 or 40 years of bushwalking, I, my husband navigated. He was a very good navigator. And I loved not having to take navigational responsibility. Um, but this was something that my husband wasn't going to be joining me. And I, I needed to find something that I could actually manage the navigation. So I understood the Bicentennial Trail to be a trail. I thought it might, it might be a bit like the West Highland Way that I'd done in Scotland, which is all nicely signposted and very easy to follow. But it's not quite like that, um, as I found. But it had all these guidebooks, okay? It's got, there's 12 guidebooks for, for the whole of the trail. And so I thought, oh well that'll that's gonna give me instructions. I'm not gonna really need to do map map and compass. I know how to do map and compass, but actually applying it on my own was really quite difficult. I'm I'm just not I've got deficit spatial skills. Yeah. So but that was the national trail. And then then I, well, I thought I I so I made that decision and then I decided I wanted to do I'd done so much bushwalking in New South Wales and Victoria. I really had walked most national parks in New South Wales and Victoria that, okay, I might as well do the – I'll try the Queensland section. And I then decided to – okay, I can walk – I really wanted to walk to my new home, which is in northern New South Wales. So – but I decided, as I say, on this Queensland section – so got myself trucked to Cooktown to walk from north to south. And the other reason it seemed like a good idea to walk from north to south was that uh, starting particularly in the winter meant that um, it avoided walking, facing the sun all day.
1: I must admit, it's, it's, it's something I never really seemed to consider. It's sort of the direction of the sun is probably one of the least impacts on, on me choosing a direction of hike. and But I think I'm a rarity there. I think a lot of people do think about that. But yeah, it's just something that it wouldn't even come into my mind about where the sun was. So it's interesting to
3: hear that.
2: Yeah, well, that's understandable. But I when when you just sort of look at the map, you know, looking at like when I'm beginning, I'm just looking at looking at the map of Australia and looking at the map of the bicentennial trail, and it's it's traveling so clearly north to south. Yeah, I think it just naturally comes. Comes to you, my God! You're walking in pretty much the same direction the whole time, and in the Queensland section, that is actually pretty true. Once you get south in, into New South Wales, um, especially done, once you get down in the Alps and such, yeah, the track goes all over the place. But, but really, mostly through Queensland, it is truly um, north north south direction. Not very often were you was I walking any other direction. Okay. Only very very short periods. So so it was actually a wise decision in that in that sense.
1: No, I must admit, yeah. You know, if I ever if I ever look at doing it, I would have I, I would start north and work south. But for for other reasons rather than the sun. So it's interesting to hear. Uh, as I said, I had not actually thought about that that aspect of it. Mm. Now, from a point of view of planning, uh, so tell us a bit the a bit about the planning for this trip. Where did that start, and what did that look like? Well,
2: the planning began with the donkeys because I knew I had pl- plenty of outdoor experience. I knew, you know, I, I knew about, I knew how to live outdoors. I had a lot of experience. But what I had no experience of was large animals of any sort, not cows, not horses, not donkeys. And so what I needed to do was, well, I virtually had to find my donkeys. Then I had to get to know them. And get to feel confident i wanted to feel confident uh before i set out um with two donkeys that was me. so the whole the planning for four and i figured on four years yeah i reckon four years would be enough time to
1: to be ready okay um and i mean you 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 were saying that most of your other Hiking in the past have been done with you know with family, uh, and and particularly you mentioned we are having to having to, to cater for young and good children, and and often you're carrying their gear when they're particularly young. Um, but how did actually um, having two two pack animals with you impact on that? Did that change your planning process? Oh,
2: entirely. I mean, it's just entirely. It was a a different type of travel. It was, um, I mean. In one way, it was the same in the sense that what I was always looking for was, was lightweight, you know, everything to be lightweight because yep. I wanted to minimize um, the amount that got donkeys carried and there was all the planning about the food, there was all, all that sort of thing. But for me, coming back to, my, to all those years of walking with young kids And especially um, when they got older and they brought their teenage friends and things along. You know, I often planned and and cooked over a fire while we were bushwalking for eight, ten people. Yep. So I had that kind of planning type. Um, I knew how to do all that part. And yet there was a lot of things that were the the same and drew on all of my years of bushwalking experience my capacity to plan food and everything on equipment for such a trek really derived from all those that that experience planning and and walking with with kids uh and their friends because often we had as much a group sometimes as big as 10 people um and, and young adults, like teenagers, who, who, who ate plenty. Yeah. So the planning was quite quite complicated, but I, and I did it all around that. My husband was the navigator, um, but for the rest of it, um, pretty much it was my, my organisation. So I, I drew on all of that um, but then, and then applied it to the donkeys. So we st- I still needed to look at, consider always the weight of things. Uh, the donkeys could carry a maximum, I determined. Um, 50 kilos would be the absolute outside for each of them. Yep. And the pack saddles, they were very good pack saddles, but uh, unfortunately quite heavy. They are nearly 10 kilo, kilos each. So we come back to 40 kilos. So I still thought that was a bit much. So I really tried to keep their weight on each donkey to 35 kilos to what I could
3: carry. Yep.
2: But with that, I could with that that weight, I could go without picking up supplies for three to four weeks.
1: That's a that's a pretty pretty good length of run without having to resupply. Uh, I, I think that's often, particularly when you when you're travelling as an, as a person and having to carry everything, really the limit is probably about ten days for most people. So three to four that's weeks right. is, is pretty good.
2: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's what I found, That was what was so exciting for me. So not only did I not have to actually carry it, but I could be out there for longer.
1: All right. So um, what were the main challenges prior to you starting this trip? What what were the things that uh, you you mentioned navigation being being something, which is why you chose this particular trail. But what other challenges were there in, in planning this process?
2: Well, one of the big challenges was how to get us to Cooktown. That was a big one. Yeah, because I didn't want to um, trust my donkeys to anybody to 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 load donkeys. Donkeys are very very intelligent animals, and so you know the more intelligent a creature is, we know it about human beings, the more easily traumatised they are. And the last thing I needed was for my one, for my donkeys to be traumatised by. Being you know loaded or in uh, you know, a uncaring or unfriendly way, so trying to find someone was was a huge challenge. And the first thing I did was I contacted um a friend who I'd got to know through the donkey world who'd moved moved to Herberton. and his I rang him to ask him, well, how did you get your donkeys up to you with you? He said, well, I, st- I still I haven't got them yet. I've been waiting to find. Someone who can bring the donkeys, and he had nine donkeys. So I said, "Okay, well, <clears throat> how about we <laughs> we jump in this together? I'll try and find a truck that will take um, all eleven donkeys and me." Him and he, my friend said, "Yeah, fantastic." <laughs> so that's what I. So and that that was that was a really big logistical problem about how to do that.
1: Yeah, I must admit. I mean, it, it's in, you know, in some respects the donkeys are making it easier because they're carrying your gear, but you can't just hop on a plane or 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 get a get a, a bus up to where you're starting. You've got you've got uh, pack animals to consider as well.
2: Mm, yes, yes. And, the, and another difference. This is a bit of a digression, but another difference about having pack animals. It is that they can't, you know, climb fences as necessary as as we can as bushwalkers when we're out on foot. But you've always got to find an opening. You can't just, you know, magically get over fences. Um, so there, there are there are lots of little things that crop up when you're when you're walking with animals.
1: Now, how did you decide how long the trip was going to take? You took you, you in your in your book, which we'll talk about a bit later on. You were saying you took roughly around about seven months. But what was the was did you have a time frame set for this trip, or was it was going to take yeah. as long yeah. as it was going to take?
2: Yeah. Well, how I did that was, I, ne- I just I needed to know how long, how far I had to walk, first. So how was I going to do that? Well, there was all these um, guidebooks, as I mentioned. I think I think there's seven covers the the section I was doing, but that would would have taken quite a long time to go through those and actually add it up. So I'm I'm pretty good at estimating. Much better at estimating in fact than, than calculating anything. So I looked at the map of Queensland and looked at looked at the, at the how close the bicentennial trail kind of ran to the main road. And yeah, so I skimmed down the numbers on the on the main road, added a bit and reckoned on three thousand kilometres. Yep, uh, which was amazingly close. I have to say, I'm, as I mentioned, I've got this weird ability to estimate. Because when I did finally add up all my kilometres on the um, from the guidebooks, it was three thousand and five kilometres.
1: <laughs> That's pretty good.
2: <laughs> so how was that? I'm very very pleased myself. But basically, yes. So I, I figured at three thousand kilometres or thereabouts, it was going to be about nine months, and I needed to—I I needed to have that sense of of, of some kind of time limit. You know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're you're working or not, retired or not. You you've you, know, you can't make it a never-ending thing. At some point, you've got to come back to to home and to to the house and to family. So yeah,
2: and have an idea. Just yeah, how long you're going to be gone? Sort of thing. <laughs> yes, it's that sort of stuff. So yes. Um, another planning challenge was supplies. How, how am I going to do this? How am I going to manage um, to get the food I needed when I needed it? I, I'm vegetarian. I knew that I wasn't going to get the sort of food that I needed um, in country areas of Queensland. So how was I going to do this? And how was I going to make sure I wasn't carrying just like just like bushwalking, you need you know you need to know you've got enough food, but you really do not want a gram more than you need. Anyone who's carried a pack knows that. So my whole I worked out a system uh, of that involved uh, a a week. A week's menu that I could add three different one-week men- menus that I could adapt, but uh, they gave me, and I put it all. I did it all on spreadsheets, and I I actually bought it all from a um, supplier in Canberra. Because when I left, I was actually living in Bunjil, yep. So I I, I had everything organised through a supplier in Canberra. It was actually Mountain Mountain Whole Foods. They they were absolutely fantastic. They even stored for me, stocked stored for me things that I couldn't buy from them, because what I did was I would fax them my order about every three weeks or a month, yep, and then have it delivered to the next point of collection, and and I, I used post offices mostly to do that. Yep, I also would. Post ahead of me, um, all my my bulk foods. You know, like something like vegemite, cooking oil, uh, those types of things. Some of the donkey, I did carry some supplements from donkeys, so I would decant those at, at my my restock points, and then post that in another box to my next collection point.
3: Yeah. Yep.
2: and that whole system worked really, really well. Um, my my putting the 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 food onto these spreadsheets worked well because what I could do is I would just tick things, and or say my quantities, and the the people filling my meeting my um, well, filling the order would know if they if something they were out of something they knew where it belonged. So they would just fill it with something else. Yeah. So I didn't yep. have any of this thing, oh, sorry, we're out of stock. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, and except for one hiccup, the system worked but well the whole trip, really, really well.
1: Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Okay, so now we'll move on to the donkeys. So you travelled with two donkeys, Grace and Charlie, so two female donkeys. And by the end of the trip, you actually ended up with three, and we'll talk about a, a bit more about that later on. Um, now, you mentioned the reason for the donkeys was to basically shoulder the load and, and, and act as pack animals, and that you chose two donkeys based on the amount of weight that you needed to carry and, and what they needed to carry. Right. But, but what additional preparation, you know, we've, we've talked a bit uh, briefly about that, but what additional preparation did you need to make in relation to? To travelling with with two donkeys.
2: Well, it was firstly, as I said, getting to know them, and getting to getting to know them involved getting them to being confident they would do whatever I asked them to do. And that what that involved was just walking and walking and walking. As I mentioned, I lived um, near in Bung- near Bungandu, and we just spent the donkeys and I spent every weekend uh, walking all over the place just together, you know, teaching like having them so they'll jump over things, so that they would walk through water whenever I needed them to, uh, on you know, across any bridges that might be a little bit scary. Just really uh, always exposing them to to whatever I could, you know, um, things that. But sometimes equines can be afraid of like like silly things like plastic bags <laughs> although although unlike a horse they won't run away from a plastic bag they will stand perfectly still though and not necessarily want to walk past it um so i wanted to expose them to it as much as i possibly could so that they would they were confident that i was not going to lead them into trouble so that was that was really you know that's but what, that, what comes with that is this wonderful relationship. It's a very precious relationship with these animals. mean, I say it over and over again. They don't have to do... These large animals do not have to do what we want them to do. They're, they're big. They can do whatever they want. <laughs> and when they will do what we want them to do, it's such a privilege. And the privilege comes with relationship as a rule unless someone treats them badly and they do it out of fear.
1: So you mentioned that you had um, a, partic- a particular carrying uh, pack, or car- not a pack, what's the word I'm looking for here? The, um, the uh, pack saddle. Pack saddle, okay. Um, and, you know, was that an easy thing to find or was, um, you know, donkey pack pack-saddle saddles not a common thing in Australia?
2: They're definitely not a common thing in Australia. So that was yes, I've got that. That's definitely one of my one of my challenges. Okay, when I felt ready to have them, I mean, have to actually load them, I had to then start to look for the equipment. Um, I know it knew there was plenty of ways in which you could get it made, but you know, I was hoping I could get it ready made. And of all things, I just when I decided that there was an advertisement in the Donkey Society Journal in New South Wales, about two complete sets of donkey packing gear. Can you believe that? (laughs) It came out like the week I decided it was time to look. And so I went to see the guy and I bought it. I bought it. I can't remember the price, but I know it was a really good price. You know, I might have been five hundred dollars for each set, but you know what that had was the, the pack saddle, all the straps, you know, which are the, the girth, the girth, the, the chest strap, everything to hold the the, the, sta- the, the saddle stable, the um, the, the, pack, the saddle bags. Yep. Uh, the um, even he even had tethers, uh, tethers, tethers, tether stra- uh, three meter pieces of tether that you could hook on to these two great big metal spikes to be hammered in the ground. So when I stopped, I could just tether a donkey and, you know, so easily. Uh, There were even what you put under the saddle, saddle blankets.
1: Saddle blankets, yep. These,
2: These wonderful saddle blankets made of canvas on the outside and underneath of sheepskin. And can I just add there, what was so fantastic about those was that I could use them under my sleeping mat. I could use, I could fold one as a as a sitting cushion, and have the other one as a as a mat underneath. So, because I'm a long term meditator and I meditated still most days, so I would sit to meditate on my my saddle blankets. And a really interesting thing about donkeys, see, is that if I did that with a horse, I would smell like a horse. Right? <laughs> But donkeys don't smell. They don't have a smell. They just smell like whatever they're eating. And I presume that's because they they don't have oily coats. So I that's my guess. They have and the, the disadvantages for them of not having oily coats is that they when it rains, they get, when they get wet, they get wet right through the skin. Yeah. So unlike yeah. dogs and horses that are protected from the rain, the donkey's not because of course, they evolved in the desert, yeah. So they're quite different. But so all of that, I got all of that equipment. Coming back to that, I've got all of that equipment from this this one couple, and the man had actually made everything, and he did everything very well. It was done really beautifully. And when I was actually like after I'd finished packing all the, the stuff in the in the car, and he'd gone off somewhere, and his wife told me that they. Planned to go trekking with donkeys, and that's why he did it. He spent um, apparently a couple of several years actually ma- manufacturing all this equipment by hand. And when they actually went on the trek, he discovered he didn't like donkeys. <laughs> 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 so he, were, he was, according to the wife, he was quite paranoid that the donkeys were going to run off with their gear. I'm going to lose the donkeys and so she said he ended up carrying more in his pack than the donkeys carried because oh, if they run off I'll lose my camera if they run off I'll lose blah I'll lose... in the end he got sick obviously because he really didn't like it yeah. <laughs> and so I got the benefit it wasn't a
3: fortunate. I just thought that was amazing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah that karma is definitely there. It's sort of uh, um, yeah, getting getting the, the right particular item showing up at the right time is, is pretty good. That's
2: right. That's right. And I, I look at this might be the right place to even mention the fact that I've hung on to it even though I had, my last trek now was four years ago. And I kind of know in my heart I won't be doing any more. Um, I've had trouble letting it go. I, sort of letting it go is sort of like letting go of a one of the really most precious parts of my life. But the reality is I really do need to start thinking about where who might be able to really make good use of my trekking gear. So I'm just sort of putting that out there.
3: Yeah, it's
1: definitely a, a unique pieces of equipment, isn't it? It's not as if you can... You can you can throw it on a horse or anything else like that. So. No, no, that's <laughs> right. That's
2: right. But it, yeah. So it, and it's traditional. It, it's it's traditional horse style packing, by the way. Yep. Donkeys can carry far greater loads than the, the fifty kilos I was mentioning. In those other co- in countries where they actually pack them properly, which is Basically on their bum, on their rump on their bum, you know. Yeah. Because that's the strongest place on a donkey. Yeah. So that, and and you can that you, you know you see them they'll, they'll carry a um, hundred kilos like that, but all we but we uh, I didn't I didn't really know that to be honest at the beginning anyway and even if I did I don't think I could have learnt very easily. At that time, which was really before so much internet use, um, how to do it. So I was stuck with the conventional horse-type packing gear. Yeah. Uh, and, and which is satisfactory as long as you keep – be aware that it's not really their natural way of carrying stuff.
3: Yeah. All right.
1: So what about, what about food for donkeys? I mean, is, you know, are donkeys basically horses or do they have, do they have different food requirements?
2: Uh, they're very, very different from horses for, in their food requirements. In fact, you know, horses thrive on a grassy paddock. <laughs> donkeys do not thrive on a grassy paddock. Donkeys, donkeys are browsers. You know, like horses and cattle are what they call grazers. So when they're eating, they just sort of, you know, they're like a, mowing a lawn. They just go backwards and forwards on the paddock until they, they finish. They don't. Go. But donkeys are, are closer to goats. They go a little bit of this and a little bit of that, according to what they, what they actually need.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And in fact, um, a the, a guy, a vet, who is not just a specialist equine vet, he's a specialist ec, vet, equine vet vet who specialises in equine feed, which I found very interesting. Um, he he told he I contacted him to ask him. Do I need to take um, extra for the donkeys or can they manage on the side of the road? And he told me a couple of things about that. He said, firstly, if you know, firstly, donkeys know what they need. Of all domestic animals, they seem to have retained that that basic instinct to know exactly what they need. And he used an example of the story of some donkey or donkeys that were trucked, grew up in Victoria and were trucked to some part of Queensland. And when they got to Queensland and were let out on their their area, the large area that were let, let, let out to, they went straight to a, a bush, a herb, a, yeah, some sort of rough bush, is what, which is what they like, that actually contained the minerals that were missing in the soil where they came from, right? They just know what they need. So, what he said how to deal with that is when you see them on the, when you're walking and you notice that they they keep going for a particular plant as you're walking and you don't want to stop. Right? He said try and look for where that plant is growing when you take your lunch stops and things like that. Yeah. So that you can actually let them out, give them twenty minutes on that food. That that that. that feed that they're looking for. So so that's what, yeah that's what I did. And when I finished um getting close to the end of the trek a couple of stockmen ex-stockmen that I met met who knew donkeys and horses said they have never seen such healthy looking donkeys. So donkeys can honestly they can live on the smell of an oily rag. It was just amazing for for a thousand kilometres. At one stage, they never saw a, a blade of green anything. And they just, Yeah,
1: that's that's pretty good. I mean, that, I think that's always the issue when you're travelling with horses. That, you, you they do have. You know, you, you, if you try and do that with a horse, you're gonna you're gonna struggle. But it sounded like they they're ideally suited for for the the trip that you were doing.
2: Oh yes, yeah. Yes. In fact, these two particular guys that I just mentioned, uh, when they they were they were saying a donkey would outlast a horse any time. In fact, they said they knew that, but had no idea that they could do so well as what they saw in my donkeys, who at this stage had walked almost two two and a half thousand kilometres. Yeah. Um, they what they said, and I said, but surely you you um you would have done that. What on those sorts of distances in, in your your driving days? Um, and they said, Yeah, we did, but with 48 men and 40 horses.
1: Yeah, yeah, I suppose you, you, you swap rest rotating rest horses through, and yeah.
2: yeah, horses cannot just go day in, day out like a donkey can.
4: So, oh,
2: yeah, I found all that, I was fascinated by all that.
1: All right. Well, I'll, I'll actually skip ahead a question because it's sort of relevant at this time. So listening to the way you're talking about the donkeys and in, in talking to you and setting up this interview, they definitely do seem to be, a, you know, while they're an equine uh, animal, they definitely seem to have their own personalities. So tell us a bit about what it's like to actually walk with donkeys. What, what's, what, do, what do you do to convince them to walk with you? And, and what's the relationship like with them?
2: Well, I guess it's sort of like round the other way. If you've got the relationship, they don't need any convincing. So it's, walking with them is... They've just got this beautiful energy, what's all I can say. Um, and, and, and sometimes frustrating because donkeys, for me, uh, all, over the, all over the world from what I read a donkey's pace is around four kilometres an hour. My two donkeys, neither of them met that. (laughs) Charlie (laughs) liked to walk at around my pace, which is by naturally around six or seven kilometres an hour. I've got quite a fast walking pace. So, and as someone pointed out, um, Charlie and I even kind of got the same length leg. (laughs) Yeah. Both got long skinny legs, whereas Grace was much more solid, shorter legs, and did not like to walk very fast at all. We'd <laughs> rather walk at around three kilometres an hour. So we had some struggles over that. Probably for the first, I don't know how long. First half, <laughs> first half of the trip, <laughs> there were struggles because the tireder I got, the more I wanted to walk at walk at my pace. I did not want to struggle. Yeah, yeah. So, so there were there was struggles around that, but. They, uh, I guess, to really, under, I, I couldn't possibly explain it. I, I was able to explain it in writing, um, those struggles and how they got sorted. So if anyone's really interested, they should read my book on that one. Um, but, yeah, to actually be with them, there, there's something just, uh, it's like, Perhaps a child walking with with mother. yep, you know, just this feeling of security. In fact, one thing that I never did mention in my book, and I hope you'll allow me to mention on 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 this interview, is that when a lot of the walking, probably the majority of the walking were on back roads, all right? There wasn't a lot of walking through the bush, and there wasn't much walking on main roads. Most of it was on. Roads, right. yeah. Often where I wouldn't see more than one or two cars a day, you know. Sometimes none, but you know, when I. But you can be sure there's one way I've discovered to make a car arrive, and that's to decide to empty my bladder on the side of the road.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's 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 pretty <laughs> normal.
2: <laughs> because there's no one around, and a car appears, a pop, you know, um, immediately. Yes. Yep. Um, Really early in the pace, it was so obvious. The donkeys moved around me and hid me from the passing car. At first time, first time it happened, I thought it was just coincidental. But it happened over and over again, and I, I just, I found that very beautiful. I really did.
1: Yes. I was going to say, I think you were mentioning that really from a perspective of you know, the, the, one of the big differences between donkeys and other animals, it is a partnership, it's not a domination.
2: It, it, yes, it, absolutely. You, you've, you've really picked that up. That's right. It is. You try to dominate, control donkeys, they kind of go, well, I'll do it my way. Or, <laughs> if, if, or if you're trying to control them to such an extent that they think you, you must be... It must be scary. So, all right, we, I won't do anything till I, till I know what's going on here. And, and to me, all this, this difference between donkeys and horses comes from the, the fundamental in their nature is that horses' reaction to fear is to run. Donkeys' reaction to fear is to stand still. That's not to say they can't be startled and kind of jump. You know? yeah. But when something is really scary, they stand still, and and it's interesting for me to see them in in say um, a grassy area or something or you know just in the bush. They they actually are surprisingly well camouflaged in most natural surroundings. I don't know I don't know how, but they are. So whereas a horse is obviously not a horse's capacity is to run and to yeah. run away, but this. I put my theory is that that capacity that that inclination to stand still has meant they have evolved this intelligence to actually think through what is needed here, to think about what what the problem is, you know. And like when I would when we were crossing rivers, I would go down to the water, and then we would stand for a moment, and okay, how are we going to do this? Uh, I, I'm thinking. I, like, this looks like a good spot to cross. You know, it looks looks to me as if there's not too many rough, you know, difficult round rocks under big round rocks underneath that the donkeys are going to find difficult because the donkeys have got really tiny, hooves. Of hooves remember, yeah. So some of these things are really not in their nature. Not in their nature to walk through mud. Not in their nature to walk through, um, you know, slippery round stones. Yeah. But then I'd stand there, and then Grace would kind of always. Would they look down at the water? Then she turned her head to the side. I don't, I don't know what she was doing when she did that, but she always did that. So somehow, or other the placement of their eyes, I think, meant she was able to see the bottom. And then she'd sort of go, you know, she might then she'd go, Oh no, this isn't such a good spot. I'm going to move a couple of meters down and downstream. And we're going to go across there. Whereas, you know, if, you're, if you've got a horse, horse that's saying, and you've got a difficult river crossing, then you just go. Okay, now go, 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 and the rider has to take responsibility for where the horse puts its feet.
3: Yeah,
2: for not, but not hurting itself. The donkeys have got this great sense of self-preservation. And I guess when I've got this relationship with them, I become part of that which they want to preserve. I suppose. <laughs>
1: Okay, so as I mentioned earlier on in the episode uh, We're going to be talking to Liz about her book uh, in, a, in a few minutes time And there are some very good stories in there uh, Particularly early on in the book Where Liz talks about uh, the the process of loading donkeys Onto a uh, horse carrier uh, Getting them up to Queensland So um, I won't spoil the surprise But it's well worth reading uh, in the book And getting the details involved on that one now, what's become of Grace and Charlie? This is, this, your walk was 15 years ago. It was in 2004. Uh, and you actually released your book earlier this year in 2020. So what's, what's become of Grace and Charlie now?
2: Uh, well, Grace died. And that was more painful for me as equally as painful for me as the death of my son. Um, Just more straightforward, that's all. I learned what just pure grief is through that. I didn't have, you know, the complications of other children or whatever to manage. Um, But she, uh, it's a a story that, that... behind her death was, it was just so unfortunate. Because donkeys live a very long life, but naturally. Donkeys can live anything from 50 to 100 years. Yep. Uh, they don't tend to in Australia, you want to ask, especially in the New South Wales and Victoria, and that's, to me, it's bleeding obvious. Why? It's because most donkeys live on these grassy paddocks, which is yeah. like leaving a donkey in a, in a, like leaving a person in a sugar factory. Um, Grace's death was just incredibly unfortunate. It was sort of like a, an accident, if you like, but I I don't want to go into that right now. It's not something I can easily talk about. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's still just difficult to talk about. It's strange. I can talk more easily about the death of my son, but I guess that's because it was much longer ago. I still find it very hard about the way Grace died. So I was left with... Um, with Charlie, and I got another donkey then to try to see whether to give her the companionship, but she was so absolutely traumatized by Grace's death, and she never really would would sort of befriend another donkey. So in the end, I I had to let go of Rosie as well, and so I just had Charlie, and. I did a trek with, so the trek I did just with Charlie in 2016 uh, was, I got sick, I, I walked from Cowra to Healesville, and I got sick at the end of it, quite sick, and I had to leave her behind, and so Charlie is actually still in Victoria. And I still, and, I'm, and I've just moved back to northern New South Wales, which is where that's the home, but in the only way home was northern New South Wales. Yep. Uh, but here, but now this is my, I expect to, to see my life out here now. But I'd love to have Charlie back, but what I know, but I'm in more of a valley now, and I know that the, it's, it's not the right, probably not the right climate for her, not the, 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 mud, the mud that's so bad when it rains heavily. Uh, the the lush growth um, and right now she's on 100 acres she's got the company of some horses and it's in really dry country in mansfield in victoria so i still haven't let her go i still kind of go through can is there a way i can bring her here now i've got a permanent home because in the four years since i got sick a whole lot of i had this health crisis and a whole lot of things happened and i couldn't have a anytime then but yeah. now i have the space to have her i've now got to make the decision and I, I haven't quite made it yet which is also part of i think not letting go of my having trouble letting go of my trekking gear because maybe i will bring her so that, that's all i feel very up in the air still about about all that
1: Okay, and and one final question on the donkeys. Um, you know, you were doing the bicentennial national trail. This is a shared trail that was designed to take horses and hikers and and by default cyclists as well. Did the fact that you were travelling with donkeys actually force you into specific directions? I mean, did you come across sections where animals weren't allowed, or was it a, a reasonably uh, steady and and expected sort of uh, route?
2: No, it was pretty, it was accessible for donkeys virtually all the way. That that, that trail was actually established. It was an initiative of R M um, Williams. <laughs> uh, it was an initiative of his. He wanted some people to, to create a track that could be ridden on a, by a horse from Cooktown to Healesville. That yep. the, the length of the Great Divide, basically, yep. what he was wanting. So it was really created primarily with horses in mind. So, so bringing, taking donkeys on that was not um, difficult, you know, not at all difficult in that sense. But during a particularly um, challenging navigation section, so challenging that this was uh, for six days, I actually had someone come with me because I knew it was beyond me to manage. as the Han Tableland, and that was I realised then how difficult it was to do difficult navigation with, on foot with two donkeys because trying to follow a compass bearing, which is what I had to do because we just had these guidebooks to give us the instructions, and walk through long grass that's then scattered with rocks. Yes, the donkeys walking on their own would have no difficulty but needing, I needed them to walk where I wanted to walk in order to maintain my compass bearing. And because I'm not good at navigation, someone else, someone else wouldn't get lost so quickly. But I'd get lost really quickly. So, um, and what I realised is, oh, if you're on a horse, it'd be so different because where you look, the horse will go. Yeah. So you're up nice and high. And I realized that was interesting to realize that, as far as navigation went in, in those difficult, like, sort of, kind of terrain, um, walking with donkeys was about the hardest. You know, if you're riding a donkey, it would be easier, but not when you're walking.
1: All right. Now, Moving on from the donkey specifically, let's talk about log- logistical issues. So, and I know there's there's probably no one answer here, but how did you approach each day? Take take us through from the start of a day to the end of the day as a, as as a typical sort of thing, anyway.
2: Okay, I have to try and think about somewhere. I think. <laughs> uh, okay, I slept in my tent, um, so I would wake in the morning around um, four, although as it got hotter, I made sure I was up and awake by three. And I would usually do um, 45 minutes to an hour's meditation. It really kind of settled my, my my being for the day. Yep. And then I'd do that in my tent, you know, just on, on rolling up my, my saddle blankets, in the way I said, uh, then then it was it would be, and I I would have my breakfast uh, soaking from the night before, so I would use um, various sorts of grain and dried fruit uh, that I would, I, I either have cooked, so let's say I've cooked quinoa the night before, rarely did I sit to eat breakfast, which is always a bit silly, but anyway, rarely I did because I would always do it while I'm pulling the tent down. and while, So I just had the bowl and spoon in there and take spoonfuls while I'm packing up. Yep. Packing up, um, breaking camp was a slow process with one person because I've got the donkeys on a on a tether, um, like a sidelining rope as a rule. Sometimes there were places where the donkeys could, could free range, but if there was no free ranging, they were... They were on a tether, so all of the ropes have got to be wound up and, and and wrapped properly, so that you know everything is is easy to get at again. I would generally not get to have a cup of tea, which is something I, was, <laughs> I always regretted that I could never seem to manage to make a cup of tea in the mornings. But I would have, but I would have a cup of tea later. I would just boil the I would I was boil the water. Make, fill my thermos fast so I could actually have tea a bit later in the morning when I stopped. Yep. And uh, so yeah, packing up is, and then I've got to pack everything into the saddle bags. And the key, as far as I was concerned, just packing the donkeys was having the saddle each saddle each side of saddle bags, each side on the saddle, absolutely equal. And uh, so, once again, because of my ability to estimate, that was actually quite quite handy. My capacity to kind of pack each saddle, each saddle bag with with everything, and then make sure that it was exactly the same. I found when I had oranges, that was always very useful. Um, I wouldn't always have them because I would run out of them. I would only buy those when I could get them fresh. But the, the, right at the end to make them, the saddle, saddlebags exactly even, I could distribute my oranges, <laughs> which is always a good help, a help to do that. And then my biggest – and finally, my biggest challenge then, – then it was harnessing the donkeys with the saddles. And then my biggest challenge of the day was getting those saddlebags on because they were each, you know, 30 to 35 kilos – Sorry, not each. A pair. Yeah, so, but each each is nearly 20 kilos, something, you know, clo- getting close to that. Um, or, um, yeah, say 18 kilos. Yeah, probably that's what they were usable. Still, to lift that, and for me, to lift an 18-kilo pack and hook it onto the saddle on one side and then hold that while I run around the other side and hook the other one on before the first side slipped <laughs> <laughs> was really really I mean the donkeys were wonderful. I would kind of line the packs up. I would put one pack down on the ground beside on one side of the donkey and the other one on the other side of the donkey. And they absolutely knew you know they were just they were so good about that. And by the way, when, in the early stages, if I would pull the girth strap too tight or something, Grace seemed to put up with anything. But Charlie, uh, the first time it happened I couldn't wear what was going on. I got the pack saddle on her and she rolled on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? And then I realised, oh she's telling me she's uncomfortable. I said, Well get you know, get up and I'll try again. So she got up and I tried again. I could see I'd actually actually put the girth in slightly the wrong spot. Yeah. Miss her. So yes, yeah, so the donkeys communicate. Instead of just running away because they're upset, they actually try and communicate. And so, so, yeah, so finally we get the, 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 the saddlebags on and everything's lovely and even, and it worked so well that people used to tell me before I did this trek that donkeys are really hard to load because of their shape and that the, 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 you're all forever adjusting the, the, the pack saddle because it'll slip. Well, I can tell you my pack saddle never slipped, not even a couple of times when the donkeys actually fell. Going up a steep slope or something like that, yeah, just didn't didn't budge. So the secret was absolutely the exactly the same, you know, exactly down to you know down to an orange, making it the same. And for that reason also, I carried everything that I needed for the day, like my food that I was I was going to you know as I was going to use that up, and my thermos flask uh, on in my backpack.
1: All right, so, um, you know, so, you, 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 by the sound of it, the, uh, the getting, getting ready in the morning and getting packed up is probably one of the most difficult things. What time did you try and be away from your campsite? And I know this is going to vary from, from day to day, but, you know, did you try and get, a, get away by a particular time?
2: I gave up on trying to get away by a particular time uh, and was fr- frustrated for a hell of a long time at how long it took me to load in the morning. I and when it got very hot, I all I could do was go for not walking after one o'clock in the afternoon. So yeah. I would work it out to try and do that. But I was not very, never very good at leaving at a particular time. I'm very, very disciplined about getting up at a particular time, but leaving at a particular time just it always just took as long as it took, you know. That's sort of how it was. So, so we would we would set off, and sometimes I didn't eat. Sometimes I didn't even eat breakfast. I would stick that in my backpack and then we'd uh, just have a stop, you know, about 10 o'clock or something Yeah, and, uh, and eat my breakfast. It depends. If it was going to be a long day, I would often do that because I generally only ate um, sort of twice in the day. And so usually, yeah, we had a stop at around somewhere between 10 and 11. In fact, when once I had – at first I only had Grace in front – but once I sort of coaxed Charlie into taking the lead as well, when she was in the lead, at around about, if if a shady tree appeared any time between 10 and 11, she would head for it. (laughs) It's like, we can stop here. Look at this lovely shady tree, and this is the time we can stop. So in some ways, the donkeys were better at time than I was around these things, which I found quite funny. So yes, we would we would stop. I would hope for a, a shady spot where we could sit, and I could have several. I enjoyed having several cups of tea. A cup of tea was totally my, um, my my balm if you like. yep. Yep. <laughs> to any kind of stress. Mostly green tea, um, but sometimes but I carried a variety of teas. In fact, yeah, usually later. You know, if I could have a cup of tea later in the day, it was it would be a really strong black tea. <laughs> That's what I would also enjoy So yeah, then then if we were lucky We'd stop somewhere for lunch uh, Around um, You know, maybe one-ish Or something like that So I kind of usually managed to walk Like what I was going for Was three hours walking in the morning Yep. One hour stop for lunch And the three hours In the morning um, plus I suppose a half an hour stop right For a break yep. um, then, then a one hour stop at lunchtime and then two hours in the afternoon was what I was going for because what I was always trying to do, and I'm sort of putting my hand over my face and in frustration because it so often didn't work, was to actually um, be set up, completely camp completely set up and eating my dinner before dark.
1: Yeah, I must admit it's something I try to do. Even as even from a walking perspective, it's just nice to not have to worry about setting up when it's pitch black. It makes it so much easier.
2: That's right. And the trouble was that no, I just could never get it. when it was full camp. You know, like full because sometimes I was able to avoid setting up a tent for various reasons. Because quite often, as you will have read in the in the middle of the track, uh, I, I I actually stayed middle and later track. I stayed in, in, in um, workers' cottages and things like that, yeah. cattle stations. But um, as long as I was setting up setting up full camp, uh, it took, I could not do setting up a total, setting up, breaking and setting up camp. Sorry, got those two things going the the way. Breaking and setting up camp in less than five hours. Yeah. So it took five hours every day when I was on my own. And when I mentioned I had a friend with me for a short, for those six days. And, of course, the obvious, when she was there, it was, it was less than half the time with two people. And it was just, I had this unrealistic, I, I, I found it really, really difficult to accept how long it took to break and set up camp.
3: <laughs>
2: and I really, I struggled with that for a long time. Sort of like, I should be able to do it faster.
1: All right, so let's move on to, to gear now. Um, in relation to um, you know you were saying you've got pack animals and you were saying you were trying to go as light as possible. were you just using what you had in relation to hiking gear or did you buy anything specifically that that was for you rather than the donkeys for this trip?
2: Uh, no, I was able to use virtually everything that I had by the way of park hiking gear yeah, yeah. Um, my own little stove. Uh, my my pots, my good cooking pots, um, yeah. I, ca- I can't think of anything that I had to buy especially. And that that was sort of, and in a way it's a reflection of how much I was able to draw on my experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the thing. It wasn't if you were learning how to hike, you knew how to do that and you, you obviously had the gear from all the years, so it was a matter of deciding whether you had what you specifically wanted rather than what you necessarily needed that's right yeah okay now at the trip of this sort of length I mean this is this is a long trip by any means and certainly from an Australian perspective um, you know short you know short of doing a walk around Australia the Bicentennial uh, National Trail is the biggest trail that we have and you did roughly just on two and a half thousand kilometers so that's a that's a big trip Um. What were the physical challenges, from your perspective, that you found on this trip?
2: Um, The physical challenges were mainly in the beginning, and I knew that would be the case just from my trekking in Nepal. You know, you get fit, you get tough, your body toughens. Uh, I remember the very the first day is still really clear to me. The first day out of Cooktown was all on on Richmond Road.
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's not a favourite of mine (laughs) either.
2: And that meant also I had to walk facing the traffic. So I had to walk on the same side of the donkeys all day. Yeah. So my my shot, not only did I have, you know, sore feet and ankles, which you'll know you'll get when you walk on bitumen, um, but I had, you know, I was, every joint was aching, it felt like, by the time I finished that day. But really... um, You know, maybe you can remind me from from what you've read. I don't recall really any major physical challenges um, much after the first couple of weeks. Yeah.
1: (sighs) Okay, well, what about the mental challenges? And again, this is one of the things that long-distance hikers often struggle with, is whether to go alone or whether to to hike with somebody else. And you you did have companionship with the donkeys, but they're not going to hold an in-depth conversation with you on a regular basis. So... How, how did you find being alone – and again, you were staying at stations and talking to people, but, ha- I mean, this was a long trip where you would have spent a lot of it in your own mind, and your own thoughts. How did you find that the, 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 the mental challenge of being alone for such a long time?
2: Well, that I regarded as an opportunity uh, because I've done, I've done many years of meditation, and it's, but it's very different as anyone who's a long term meditator knows from the mind state that one has in a retreat. And then you come back out into the world and my God, what happened to this wonderful mind state I had in the retreat? Yep. So, what I knew was that this would be the opportunity to practice, bring it, bring my meditation practice off my cushion and into walking. So, I, I really. I really didn't look for company at all. I'm I'm not someone who – I can certainly manage with my own company. I've got lots of experiences and skills, I guess, to be with my own company. And, in fact, the whole thing about the social thing, you will recall, was actually the social challenges were actually the biggest major challenge of the walk because I was – I had to, I ended up having to rely on cattle stations, which was never part of my plan. Never. I was, you know, I had it all set up so I could be independent. But the drought was such that the, that where, where the, um, you know, on the Bicentennial Trail is these designated campsites. Yep. So much of it, especially through Queensland, is through private property. So you're not supposed to camp. Anywhere, but where, the, but where it's been agreed with the property owners. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't camp in most of those places because there was no water, and, and 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 no feed for the donkeys.
1: Yeah, yeah, it works so, works wonderfully when you can get it. You've got you've got your water with you and your food, and and that's all you have to worry about. But when you've got stock with you, it's it's a different situation.
2: Yeah, yeah, I had to. They needed feed, and um, so it was. Uh, so so I ended up. I would have to. There was. I ended up having to call phone ahead to let the station people know I was coming through to ask them if there was water at a particular stop and invariably the answer was no Uh, well what about feed Ta ha and I just laughed (laughs) because if there was feed if there was water there was no feed yeah. Cause that's where the cattle spent, spent the night so there's absolutely no feed and I would I, I tried at first asking them doing the very city thing and asking them how, you know how much they charge to drop me off some water and some feed. but it's, it's a different culture out there, different world. it's like i no, come to the, come to the homestead And so that's what I ended up having to do quite a lot. And I didn't really want to do that because well for a start, a vegetarian in cattle country is well. <laughs> odd. Um, and, and what I gradually began to realise was that they ex- they expected some sort of entertainment. I, I just don't have those sorts of skills.
1: Yeah, yeah. I suppose for them, you you're, you 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 were unique. You, you know, telling your stories and what you'd been through is is something different for them. But you know, sometimes all you want to do is just go and lay down and, and go to sleep. Yes,
2: yeah, so I, I was this novelty that they wanted to kind of, um, you know, exploit. I don't mean that in any harsh way, but you know, uh, so so the, the challenges for me were were very much social. And I I absolutely didn't expect that. I was expecting more physical challenges. Yeah. But it was almost as if my karma or whatever you want to call it was saying, no, been there, done that. The only physical challenge, real challenge, actually, was trying to maintain my weight. I got thinner and thinner. Yeah. No matter how how much I ate, I I couldn't keep my weight on, which was it. And... Yeah, which was a bit of a nuisance because I knew when I, when I lost, when under a certain weight, I, I could tell my energy levels dropped. So that was yeah. difficult. But, but yeah, it, it was, um, and, and I met some incredibly interesting people as well. Um, but it was a the, the personal challenge, the inner challenge of just dealing with um, myself. And this is what you do when you bring your meditation practice into li- into life. Then it's about really and truly dealing with oneself and whatever's going on inside of oneself and accepting it
1: for what it is. Okay. Now, one of the questions that I get, that I often get asked, uh, and this is a, this is, without being sexist, I get a lot of females saying, "What about personal safety?" Was that ever a worry for you or is this something that you'd been walking for so long in in relation to bushwalking, you just didn't think about uh, having any issues there at all?
2: I certainly didn't think about having any issues, partly because um, my childhood was such that where I wasn't safe was in my own home Uh, and where I the first place in the world that I felt totally safe was in the bush. Yeah. So I just, for me, you know, being out there, even even as a young, younger woman, like when I used to go running and things like that at night, I, I just knew, you know, that there's there's nothing out there to be scared of. It, it's just it's where 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 it's scary is at home. So. I, I can see that now as the upside of actually what what happened to me as a child, is I just don't don't have the same fears that someone else might of being um, on my own, uh, you know, in in strange environments. I guess. Yep. Yep. And and um, the people used to, particularly women, often asked me, "Wasn't I scared?" And so. At first, it sort of vaguely irritated me that so many women thought immediately of something scary. I just thought that was quite sad. Uh, but I would, I, I, so I started to answer, well, what should I be scared of? And they'd say, well, um, what about being attacked? And my answer was, well, I've come from a city. You know, where do you think I'm most likely to be faced with an attacker? In the, in the centre of Sydney at night or out here? Oh, and kind of agree and realise the city. And then they say, well, well, but what if you have an accident and there's no one there? Well, um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm much less likely to have an accident than most people around here. Oh, why is that? Well, that's because I'm, I'm on foot. I'm not driving a car. You know, most accidents, I would presume, occur because in a car. Yeah. Not, not, on, not on foot. Yeah, so...
1: Okay, now from a positive perspective, I mean, what we, you know what, what was, what really stood out for you on this trip? I mean, you, you mentioned the travelling with the donkeys was a, as a highlight. You talked about your interactions with people, um, but what was the real highlight of this trip for you?
2: Yeah, the willingness of people to help out was certainly a highlight because it was quite remarkable how much people put themselves out. But it it had its cost. I was looking for independence. And I suppose you could say as a highlight was what I learned was about interdependence instead of independence. Yeah. I wanted to be a human island. Instead, what I learnt was what it really meant to be, meant to be a wanderer. That as a wanderer, I had no home. I was like a wanderer, even though I might have been walking from A to B. I was still a wanderer through other people's country, if you like. Country in the sense that the Aboriginal people would talk about. Yep. So I was, I didn't belong and learning the importance of respecting the people who did feel they belonged to that land. So I think what I learnt was um, well, the highlights, all the things I learnt, and there was so much. And I would go take that. that to be is more important than the to think. Because one of the things about, I've been practicing meditation for a long, long time now, and to just know that we are not our thoughts, that thoughts come and go, they've got nothing to do with us. We actually don't have no control over them whatsoever. Yeah. So to just be aware of those thoughts as part of a passing parade, uh, which I was always able to do in a retreat, but somehow or other back in the world, they would grab me again as if they're real and important. Some thoughts occasionally are important, but most they them are not.
3: No, no.
2: Yeah, to actually then recognise that the shoulds that I had were only thoughts as well. And so, you know, I guess that was one of the highlights, was the point at which I could let go of the shoulds, the should that I should arrive at a campsite at a certain time, I should get packed up or be able to break, break camp or pack up in a certain length of time.
1: All right. So we'll move on now to the, the last point of discussion, and that's the book that you've released earlier this year called The Only Way Home. Um, and for those people listening to this podcast, we uh, I'll provide a link in the show notes. We uh, as this podcast is released, we'll also have a written review of the book. Um, and um, it's there. There are some very good stories, and and from my perspective, this is one of the books that I've most enjoyed reading over the last year or so. It's it's a it's a good story, and it's a it's a well written book. That's that just. You just want to read. So tell us a bit about the book. Was was it your plan to write a book prior to this trip or is this something that came out of the trip itself?
2: No, I didn't plan to write a book. That was for sure. I did take – I did plan to write a journal. Um, I'm not normally a journal writer, but somehow rather, other I thought I would want to write the story – Probably for myself, and, and maybe even for for, close, for hopefully that my children would read it as well. Yep. <laughs> it was part of that, you know. But to actually write a book, no. But so what I did was I wrote um, I wrote the story of the trek. I did that. I probably had it finished. I think around two thousand and six. Because I, yes, I, I did keep really good journal notes. So I every day, no matter how tired. I had this really small notebook. I would write some, just some notes, like just absolutely just notes of that day, and it mightn't be there. Mightn't be more than three sentences, or or you know a dozen words. But I did that every day, and then about and I didn't plan this. This just kind of worked. Worked gradually. Then I would stop to restock about every three to four weeks. And then what I, that's when I learned that, oh, this is how I need to do it. I would also spend time at those stops. I would, I would stop for maybe five days usually. That's what I gradually did. Uh, and write up my journal. And what was remarkable was how I could look back at those daily notes and each day was enough to remember that day. So it was really, I was quite, I was quite amazed at that. Um, obviously, you know, if I looked at it a year later, I wouldn't have. But it was only, you know, three or four weeks. So I'd go back and look at each day and write, write it up. So so basically, I wrote up these journals. And then uh, probably about, by about the end of 2006, I had I had written the story. I sent it to an author I knew to say, yeah, what, you know, how do you like this? Would you have a read? And he wrote back and said, yeah, it's great. He said, you know, it's it's almost publishable with a bit of work. I was, wow, okay, Uh, but that was a surprise because, yes, I'm a writer. I've been a writer for a long time. I write for work, but it's academic writing. I'd never tackled anything like this, writing about myself. So I was delighted when Malcolm said what he did. But he said, if you want to make it publishable, which I didn't think I did, but still, um, you're going to have to talk about why you did the trek. i went like, oh. I said, oh, that means that's my whole life. You'd yep. oh, you better get started, hadn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So even then, the notion of it being publishable, I d- just started at that point to think, well, what I'd like is for it to be, with Malcolm's kind of encouragement, I'd like it to be good enough that my, inher- my descendants would like to read it. And obviously, you know, you're not going to write your great-great-grandmother, read your great-great-grandmother's story when you don't know her if it's not well written. So I knew it had to be written. In order to achieve that, it had to be written at a kind of publishing standard, you know. So I was going to keep on working on my writing. So, yes, so that was the point at which, yes, I had the track written. I then wrote about my life to the extent, all the parts of it that seemed to come together to lead to my doing this track. And then the question was, and then I sent that to Malcolm too, he said, well, okay, so now can you weave them together? And you see, I love a challenge. I like physical challenges and I like intellectual challenges. So so I said, right, okay, well, I'll give it a try. And it was once I started to read, weave it together, that's when the actual healing process started somehow. Until then, I was just kind of writing. I'd done a lot of like I I felt as if I'd gained so much from the trek about what I'd learnt. Um, I thought I was ready, I think you, you know from reading the book. I ended up using this trek as my transition from 40 years of marriage to living solo. So I felt when i finished the trek, I had achieved that. So I guess that's a highlight too. All right, I did feel as if I was ready to do that, but my life was very complex and difficult and full of trauma. So it was—it was, it was actually—I had no idea how, from, especially from all of my years of meditation, how valuable writing was for yeah. from the perspective of healing. So that was what the next—well, how many years is all that? Is I've run out of counting. Say from about two thousand and eight to so ten years of writing, of writing and rewriting, and things that came up that I would remember would that I never thought of that were important, and and I just the healing just kept on going through the, through that period, uh, it, and I never I never felt really sure that I was that it was real that I was ready to publish, like in the sense of ready to tell my story, the, the story of my life. And yes, I, I was happy to tell the t- story of my trek, but the trouble is that the truth was the story of my life, it had it didn't make sense except in the story, context of my life. Yep. When was I going to be ready to tell that story and release it to the public, even if it was good enough to publish? And when I finally became ready, was when in the in last year when i i'd been my one of my daughters had been flooding me with material about the effect of trauma on the brain and i just finally read it read 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 and read and finally i got it i understood the effect of complex trauma on my brain in a really fundamental way of why it explained almost everything about my my behavior and my decisions. So once I once I, and I caught once I incorporated that. Right, okay, I I'm ready to let it go now, and because you see, I wasn't ready before because I had secrets, and the trouble with secrets, secrets are always associated with with shame, or we don't, or it's not a secret. You don't need to keep something secret unless it's shameful. in some way. So I was able to then reveal my secrets because I'm no longer ashamed because I understand that I'm the person I am today as a result of a lot of a really difficult life um, and all this really foolish ways and, and apparently insane ways I seem to behave. Could all be explained, and yet in the end, they've got me to today,
1: where I can actually tell my story in a coherent way. I know writing books can is is not a quick and quick and dirty sort of process. I mean, I know the uh, the the, the full on professional writers will often knock out a book in a year, but for for most people, as you say, it tends to be done over a period of years, um, and, and as. As you write things, your perspective changes, and you rewrite and you change things. Uh, and yeah, and it's it's it, it sounds like a uh, a journey in itself. Writing the book just as much as undertaking the actual trip itself.
2: Absolutely, Tim. That because what it comes what it comes down to for me that in that book are three journeys. There's the journey of the track. There's the journey of my life as it led to the track, and then. Is the journey of he- writing and healing, and writing and healing, and writing. That that, and I think now, it by the time it was finished, it is written from the perspective of me in my mid seventies. With or because, but because I started writing so long ago. The actual factual memories are all have all been captured and captured quite well.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So yeah, I think that's um, and I feel totally blessed that someone recognised the value of it and published it, I have to say. I'm thank you to Woods Lane Press. I am very
4: grateful.
1: Okay, now one final question. Having completed your trip in two thousand and four. If you were to go back and do the same trip again, would you have done things differently or is the the way it happened pretty much the way you would still do it?
2: Oh well, can I couldn't not learn, could I? There's so much I could learn from <laughs> from what I did, from that, you no? Know? Imagine doing it now when I I wouldn't get impatient with the donkeys just because I wanted to walk fast. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I wouldn't be shooting on myself about I should be able to pack up quicker because I can only pack up as fast as I can pick a pack up. That's all. I can only set up camp as fast as I can pack it, set it up. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not mucking around. I just, it just takes as long as it takes. So all those shoulds, and it's actually a bit difficult to imagine how it would be now, really, if I were to try and do it again. Because I am a wiser, and despite being older, I think stronger person than I was when I did the trick.
1: All right, that's good to hear. So we've been talking to Liz Byron about her unique journey on the Bicentennial National Trail. To find out more, read our review on her book on the Australian Hiker website. Uh, And Liz, thank you for your time. And thank you, Tim. Okay, so as we mentioned, this was a longer podcast than we typically do for a a one-person interview. Uh, But I must admit, I found found this story to be really interesting in a number of different levels. Uh, And first up, um, I'll go a bit backwards here in some respects. Um, This all started out with uh, doing a book review and and thinking this would make a really good podcast. Um, But the book itself, which we've done a a separate review of, and the the link is in the show notes for that, um, is a really interesting book. Um, It's a non-fiction book, and a lot of books I find that tend to be telling stories of journeys... Sometimes they can be a bit academic based, um, and they tend to lose interest partway through. Um, this one was a very interesting read. Yeah,
0: I think some sometimes books can they go one of two directions. One is uh, this is how I put my foot one in front of the other, and so it's very sort of um, retelling the steps um, in a very specific way. Um, or it becomes very inwardly focused and, and you know, fixated on uh, my growth and how I feel and all of those sorts of things. And I think this, bo- this book's quite different to that.
1: I think it does actually get a good balance. I mean, in talking to Liz when she was talking about doing her first rough draft of this, she said it was really a story about the trip without the backstory. And that backstory was needed to provide the context for why Liz was doing this trip. Um, and it's not often that people plan on doing potentially anything up to a nine-month trip. Mm. Um, and this one ended up being just a bit over seven months. Um, but you know, there was a, there was reasons for Liz wanting to do this trip apart from something she enjoyed doing. Uh, and that's all very well detailed and outlined in the book itself. So, as I said, it the book itself... Um, has so many interesting stories that we didn't even touch uh, touch on in the interview uh it's well worth a read and particularly early on in the book uh liz talks about the the, the whole uh, arduous task of originally getting the or initially getting the the donkeys um onto a horse float and there was actually 11 of them in total uh, including her two uh and uh, it's uh you know, you tend to assume that they're just small horses and they're definitely not. So uh, <laughs> there are some very good stories in through there. Going on to uh, the donkeys in particular, and again, this is what makes this story stand out a bit. The Bicentennial National Trail is roughly about 5,300 kilometres. Um, and if you go online to the website and see the people who have, who have uh, identified as having done the trip, there really isn't that many. Now, that's probably for a couple of reasons. The trail came about in 1988 before websites were uh, even in existence or very common. So there's a, there was obviously a number of people that have done this who were uh, prior to the website going online. Um, it's a really long trip and it, and it was even, It's a lot of time to commit. It's a lot of time to commit. People seem to take that sort of 6 to 12 months to do it in most cases. Um, it is... Even though it's a shared trail designed to be used for hikers and for uh, horses in particular, um, it's more about the horse side of things than it is about the the people side of things, uh, because it really is geared on management roads and and areas where horses are allowed to go through. So, you know, if it was purely a foot trail, it might be a very different trail. So, I think the trail itself, uh, at least from my perspective, and, and in talking to Liz was really just wallpaper on the trip itself. It was a backdrop to the trip rather than being the centrepiece of the trip. Certainly the centrepiece for me was the relationship between Liz and her donkeys uh, and it was just that. Um, She, uh, in a number of times, talked about uh, the relationship being a partnership whereas, you know, you tell a horse what to do and it does it. Um, whereas donkeys, you've got to really have their agreement and they've got to trust in you to to actually do what you're asking them to do and trust that you're not putting them in danger. So it was it was quite interesting to hear that relationship and she obviously did care quite a lot about the donkeys and it was really obvious um, that the relationship was there between them.
0: And she hadn't had donkeys before.
1: No, and it's it's one of those sort of things where she did actually, I mean, Coming back to the whole reason for taking the donkeys was, you know, she was 60 when she did this trip. She had gotten to the stage where she realized she was unable to do a trip of that length and carry a full pack, Uh, and pack animals were definitely the way to go, and donkeys seemed the logical sort of choice. Um, She ended up taking two donkeys because um, even though they were capable of carrying more, she didn't want to put any more than a maximum of 50 kilos on, on an animal. Uh, and she ended up, by the sound of it, having roughly about 70 kilos approximately between the two donkeys. So you know, that would have been a, a pretty big load for just one animal. Mm, yeah. uh, and, um, um, you know, she started off with the whole concept of want to do the trip. Donkeys is the logical way to do this. Now she'll start the planning side of things. The planning, to a great extent, was based around the donkey. She had all her own equipment. It was all relatively lightweight. Uh, but... Um, uh, trying to find pack saddles and all the equipment for donkeys, uh, she, it, it sounded almost a bit like um, you know, Divine Intervention where you know, just as she started looking for pack saddles for her donkeys, they appeared in, the, uh, um, appeared in the, one of the donkey magazines uh, just at the right time uh, and she managed to, to pick these things up rather than having to get them made or try and get them from overseas, which would have been a bit of a nightmare. I think the, uh, it, it was interesting and um, it was a conversation I had with Liz uh, prior to the interview and we didn't talk about it in the interview, but she said, really, when you think about the relationship between horse, the comparison between horses and donkeys to people, she said, you know, the, um, and I'm sure a lot of people who are horse people will probably disagree with this. You'll be in trouble <laughs> in a minute. I think. She was saying that you know, the, uh, the, when you compare horses to people, uh, horses have got the mentality of about a three-year-old. Where donkeys have got the mentality of a thirteen-year-old, and I think yeah, you know, I think there's probably pros and cons on that. Trying to get a thirteen-year-old uh, adolescent to do things you want them to do sounds exactly like a donkey. It'll only do something that it really wants to do, um, and yeah, you know, it's it, it, it. She just in the book itself, she really just gives example after example of things that you just wouldn't expect out of a out of a pack animal. Um, uh, to be able to do uh, and to be able to help out with the trip. So it was actually quite amazing. Uh, There were some very interesting stories through there. The whole concept of the trip, she ended up not completing the full trip she'd planned to. She was going to start in Cooktown and finish at her home and she didn't quite get there. Um, uh, She probably had about a month to go and this was tied in with the sale of a house, uh, she had a, an issue with saddle sore on one of the donkeys in particular. Uh, this was Grace. Uh, and um, uh, she looked at getting a third donkey and she actually ended up getting a third donkey and adding a, adding one donkey to a pair of donkeys just didn't work. Uh, you know, The relationship wasn't there. They obviously needed time to get used to each other and build a relationship and it was a bit hard. So she did end up finishing the trip earlier than planned but still covered roughly around about 2,500 kilometres, which is pretty impressive. I think the whole thing from Liz's point of view, one of the the highlights she talked about was she intended to do this trip by herself with the donkeys and not rely on anybody else. Uh, And because of the time she did it, where Australia was in the middle of probably one of their worst droughts in a long time, uh, and particularly in that area of Queensland, there was either no water... Or if there was water, there was no feed, uh, and so while it was okay if you're a camper to carry water with you and to carry of your own food, it's a bit hard when you've got pack animals. So for a lot of the time, she ended up staying in homesteads of the properties that they, she went through. Yeah,
0: this is interesting because that wasn't her intent at all, was it?
1: No, it wasn't her intent, and I think it gave her a different experience than what she thought she'd end up with. Um, yeah, it's. If you can imagine doing a long day's hike, you know all you want to do after a hard day is just go to bed, uh, and you've got someone who's been gracious enough to invite them into your you uh, into their home and will you know feed you and give you somewhere to stay, but in return they want to talk to you about uh, about what you're doing and hear your story, uh, and sometimes you know, some people don't necessarily uh, fit into that mould. Uh, it's almost a bit like your your light entertainment. Um, uh, that sort of stuff doesn't particularly worry me, but again, it's really horses for courses and you've got to be the sort of individual that's happy, happy about doing that.
0: Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, what she was saying was that she would phone, um, you know, the, the local homestead to find out about water and those sorts of things. And, and, uh, probably mostly there was none, um, and in, um, I guess, yeah, appreciation of what she was doing, they would invite her in and say you have to stay with us uh, tonight and be our guest and, and, uh, yeah, that did mean that you had to be a little bit sociable, a little bit upbeat about the whole thing and, uh, you know, it's a two-way thing Um, and, she, you know, she was probably in need of a bit of company at some point too, I think, you know, wasn't uh, probably a one-way street.
1: And I think about also you know, saying to someone in the middle of cattle country that I'm a vegetarian as well. <laughs> so, uh, <yeah>. You're what? <laughs> yeah, so I think, it, it, it. as I said, for me, this was a really interesting story. Uh, I was really glad I had a chance to talk to Liz and it was a really interesting book to read as well. So I think if you have the opportunity... Go through, get a hold of the book. Uh, and I think, even if you're not a hiker, it's a really interesting story and it's well worthwhile looking at. I think it's also the other thing that really stood out for me on this is that I realize at some point, whether it's 10, 20, 30 years down the track, um, you know, when I get to the stage of can I do the big trips that I want to do? Um, you know, rather than saying, well, no, I can't, I just have to stop this altogether, uh, about looking at alternatives. You know? Are pack animals an alternative? Not always the case. I mean, you're not always able to take them into national parks, uh, but at least it does give you an option and an alternative. And Liz, from Liz's perspective, she had no experience at all um, uh, prior to planning this trip. Uh, she got the donkeys. She learned how to work with them. Uh, how, to, how to manage them uh, and build the relationship before she started the walk. So that was a really interesting concept through there. Okay, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, and as I said, go through and have a look at the book review. Uh, and if you're looking at an interesting book to read, definitely one worth thinking about. If you have the opportunity, please go through and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or the podcast listener of your choice. And let people know about this podcast if they've got a, a, a an interest in something just a bit unique. That's all for me. Bye for now.
0: And bye from me.